It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. What you had is you had this table, nine people from all these different industries and all these different places, all speaking freely. And it was, how is that? How do you not find that fascinating? You can't pay for that. Today, I'm going all in with a world-renowned star name. I'm welcoming On The Edge, Molly Bloom. You may know her as the former Wonder Kid skier who had a serious back injury that prevented her from going to the Olympics. You might know her as one of three prodigy siblings, including cardiothoracic surgeon Jordan Bloom and American football star Jeremy Bloom with the Philadelphia Eagles. I'm told that's a team of some sort of American sport. But more likely, you know her as the real-life version of the protagonist from the Aaron Sorkin movie Molly's Game. After being approached by actor Tobey Maguire, that's the Spider-Man guy, to host a poker game in the basement of the famous Viper Room nightclub, things went absolutely insane for Molly. She ended up hosting in this hub of intrigue and celebrity, everyone from the Olsen twins and Macaulay Culkin to Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. And that's not to mention Leonardo DiCaprio. Millions of dollars were at stake and lives and careers were made and ruined as A-lister gossip swirled through the smoky room organised by Molly. She was on top of the world, that is, until the Russian mafia got involved and put a gun in her mouth. She talks about that very harrowing moment in today's episode. But that's just about when the FBI started pursuing her with charges including money laundering and illegal gambling. She was facing 10 years in prison as the FBI pressed her to name names. She'll explain what happened next. The movie about Molly's life sees the wonderful Jessica Chastain play her with Idris Elba, her lawyer, and Kevin Costner, her father. It's very moving, so I recommend you watch it if you haven't already. I've seen it three times, and it gets even better on each viewing. It won an Oscar in 2018 for Best Adapted Screenplay. Molly runs a podcast called Torched, which tells the stories of scandal, controversy and redemption at the Olympics. Do check it out. It has some fascinating stories you've probably never heard of that will blow your mind. Follow her on Twitter and Insta, that's short for Instagram, on at I'm Molly Bloom. Tell her you enjoyed this episode. I'm sure she'd love to hear from you. And I'll see if I can get her to come to the YouTube live chat. So come at 9 p.m. to see that. Maybe she'll be, I don't have a clue, 4 p.m. Eastern time, that is. And interact with us in the chat. In this episode, Molly doesn't disappoint. You don't get to move and shake with the biggest movers and shakers in the world without having a lot of charisma and smarts. And they come across in abundance in this episode. It's one of my favourite episodes of all time and we really hit it off. And I hope you enjoy it too. So sit back and relax. Imagine you've got Leo to your left, the Olsen twins to your right, and a deck of cards in front of you. For one hour only, you're on the edge with Molly Bloom. How are you doing, Molly? What's going on? Um, everything's good. I just 
had a baby. So it's a little bit of a different life at the moment and probably for the rest of my life. But yeah, everything's good. What's having a baby like? I've never done it. <laughs> uh, it's it's transformational. You know, uh, your life changes dramatically. And I feel like you, I've changed as a human being dramatically. Um, I, in my opinion, it's, it's, uh, I don't know. I mean, it, it's such a personal choice, but um, I have been absolutely awestruck at, at how profound of an experience it is. That's so beautiful to hear. It makes me want to do it myself or have my have my partner do it. I'll have to ask her. She may be really hard for you to do it. But. <laughs> I'll ask her if she might want to at some point. That would be good. It's really weird because I feel like I know you because I think Jess, did you think Jessica, Jess, Jessica Chastain did a good job? I think she did an incredible job. It's sometimes freaky to watch that movie <laughs> and see how well she nailed like the my, my speech patterns and she really got in my head. She really got inside my head. Great. I watched it yesterday, just while, um, just in preparation. It was, a th- I think, the third time I've seen it now, and it's a really funny thing. Do you ever have this if you're watching, like, for research purposes or whatever? You're, there's like a distance almost. You're not getting like that emotional, and then suddenly I found myself very emotional uh, at the end, and it was after your accidents they showed it again at the end and I don't know why it's so great when a movie director can do that because it's like why am I now suddenly there are tears coming out did you did you get emotional watching it back what was it like to watch that movie back it was a trip um so just to give you a little background the producers and Aaron the writer director um said the movie's done it's edited you should probably sit in a room by yourself and watch this movie um because it's coming out to the world and so you know and I thought about it and I just said, I don't, I don't think I want to do it that way. I think I want to watch it in, in, at the premiere. And so, you know, I'm sitting in the movie theater. It's five minutes before this movie starts. There's 2000 people in the theater and I'm like, not in a good place. <laughs> Terrified. <laughs> I'm like, why did I do this? I have no idea if the movie works, if it's good. Like, you know, I read the script a million years ago, but who, who can remember that? And then I started watching the movie and it was this incredibly um, deep, meaningful experience to watch that movie with 2000 people who are laughing at the parts that are funny and crying at the parts that are sad and cheering when I, you know, for, for instance, when I didn't get sentenced to jail and, and you, you know, you go through these things alone, essentially, you have people around you and you have support, hopefully, but you go through them alone. And I went through that with 2000 people and it was it was a really prolific experience. Um, and it was also just super exhausting. I mean, I, I think I, I think I spent like five minutes at the party and went home and just got in bed. I bet. Did people know when they were watching the film, did they know that you were there in the, in the screening? Mm-hmm. That's awkward. Yeah. Very awkward. <laughs> I would, if I, if I was sitting near you, I would have like, laughed extra hard at the good bits and like wanted to show you I'm sad I wouldn't want you to think oh god look because it's like you want to show the person that you feel empathy for them but you're in a cinema so you're not supposed to talk really right well you're a nice guy (laughs) 
well, I don't know about that. I've had that experience myself because I've been at like film festivals when they've shown my film and because I'm on the screen as a documentary presenter, it's the same thing. And you're sitting there and you're like, and, and you get the impression, I got the impression people around me were sort of laughing extra loud, nudging in my direction. And I just sort of wanted to disappear at that moment. I just wanted to sort of, you must have had that, yeah? Yeah, you feel so exposed, right? Yeah, and I mean, look, for you, it's your life. And for me, it was like someone else's life I was looking into. Yeah, but you, I mean, you could, you're still hyper invested it's your film yeah 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 absolutely what's what's let's go what's the worst thing that can happen in sports (laughs) uh you know skiing over a little pine bough losing your ski and and ending your career what was that like for you i mean because you must have dreamed were you dreaming and dreaming of being this you know making a whole career of it and then that happened oh yeah i mean i i was all in you know i was and, and and i was quite an underdog um, because at 12 years old, I, I had that surgery and essentially they fused the top 11 vertebrae together, which I no longer had a movable thoracic spine, you know, with two really heavy metal rods and, and my sport was, was mogul, mogul skiing. So I was such an underdog and, and nobody really kind of paid attention to, to me for most of my career. And then I made the U S development team went out on tour and had the same result as my brother, who was a prodigy. Um, you know, I got third overall, uh, on the tour that year and, and then headed to the Olympic qualifiers. So for me, it was the culmination and the realization of all these hard hours and having to, you know, ski through pain and and also ski through this, doubt that you could ever even do it because of your circumstances and and everything. And so, you know, it was a heartbreaker to get to the qualifiers and, and, you know, the, the movie um, painted it as though I, I fell, you know, that that fall was so catastrophic that I couldn't ski again. And that wasn't the truth. Um, I could, I I could have skied again, probably. Uh, It was incredibly dangerous for me to, to ski moguls with all that metal hardware in my back and, and I I was almost constantly in pain. Um, and so I had to make a decision. Do I have another four years in me? Is it, is it even a possibility for me? But in a lot of ways I had, I felt like I was at this sort of apex of my career and that I, I really had a shot and I had dreamed about it since, you know, since I put skis on. It must've been devastating. It was, it was devastating. I didn't know how to get past it. Is that what led you towards the whole poker and everything that followed? Because the, the movie's obviously a little ambiguous about it because it's Kevin Costner and there's, I think that was from what I gather from a bit of research on Aaron Sorkin, he was saying a bit of the father-daughter relationship was invented. So how much of that is 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 real and what, and what do you think was the reason? Because that's a key scene, isn't it? It's like, why did you do it? That's that key scene at the end. Yeah. Um, I think I was primed for a rebellion. You know, I I grew up in this very high achieving family my youngest brother, number one in the world at 18, one world champion was world champion three times in a row, went to two Olympics, both Olympics. He, he was number one in the world going into and went on to uh, get drafted in the NFL and play football for the Philadelphia Eagles on and on and on. He started a charity and it's uh, just sold a software company and somewhere in the middle there, uh, I think he was an Abercrombie model. So, you know, that's, that was my little brother. My middle brother uh, is a Harvard educated cardiothoracic surgeon who's 
just the most decent human being you can imagine. And he's at Massachusetts general. And, and so I just, you know, I, I really wanted a seat at this table. Um, and I put my whole self into it, into my sports career, you know, everything I had, I left nothing on the field and it didn't work out. And it didn't work out in this really like unfair way in this really anticlimactic way, you know? And so I was finishing my undergrad at the university of Colorado, but like I just mentioned to you, I, I didn't know how to move forward. I was so heartbroken and, and also just kind of, uh, lost because I put every, I'd sacrificed so much and put everything into the skiing thing and felt like I, I, I did what I was supposed to, and it didn't work out. And so to kind of regroup, I took a year off and went to LA just honestly, just to be warm and to feel like a kid and to have a bit of an unregimented life before heading to law school. But when I walked into that, that poker game, you know, I wasn't walking in as who I was a couple of years ago when I was like training hard and had this dream. I walked in there as like a heartbroken kid um, who was kind of pissed off at the world and, and maybe ready for a rebellion. And so I think that that was a big piece of it. In real life, was there that scene with your father? I presume he really was a, a Freudian therapist where you, where you were being dismissive of Freud. And it was because it was this really smart, subtle way of, I don't think I've seen a, a a daughter rebel against their parents in such a subtle way as in that in that scene. Well, you know, those are, those are the words of the brilliant Aaron Sorkin, but I, I, I certainly rebelled against my father every chance I got. And sometimes it was subtle and sometimes it wasn't, <laughs> <laughs> but I would- yeah. You know, I would always search for those moments. Um, and the scene really did happen. It didn't happen in Central Park. It happened in, in Malibu, actually. And it was uh, it was a bit different than it was in the movie. I, I finally did get the courage to ask my dad, why didn't you like me as much as my brothers, which has been something that I'd felt was the truth and it haunted me since forever. Um, and you know, really sort of like created this existential ache in my life. Um, And his answer was a bit different. It wasn't about witnessing him cheating on my mom. It was that he said, I've been a psychotherapist for 30 years. Um, I've seen what the world does to people. And I've seen in particular that it's even harder for women. And I wanted to make you tough. And he said, you know, there were times where I didn't like you as much as I liked your brothers because listen, I, I was difficult and my brothers were easy. Um, but he said, but I always loved you the same. And I just really wanted to make you formidable. And in that moment, I saw my dad for who he was and, and this story that I had been going, this narrative that I had in my head that, that really drove me to some dark places and, and created a lot of pain and suffering, um, was changed. And it was a big lesson to me that you have to go to the places both in your life, you know, physically and emotionally that scare you because you can't, you can't hide from what the truth might be um, because it's just better to know. And it doesn't always turn out that way, but um, it, it was just this culmination of, I, I stopped skirting, I stopped hiding from it. And I just got vulnerable and asked the question. And then the answer I got helped me to understand um, and my dad and my relationship has 
it's so wonderful now. And that, and that was the turning point. Oh, that's so great to hear. That's great that you have a great, good relationship with him. There's so there's so much that goes unsaid between parents, isn't there? And it's Oh my God. Yeah, I guess. But do you think, did you need that 10, 15 years in the sort of dark poker underbelly to become that person who could, I suppose, confront your father and ask him uh, upfront about everything? I think I needed that 10, 15 years in that world for a lot of reasons. Um, I think I had huge fantasies about making a lot of money and what I thought that that would bring me. Um, And I think if I hadn't done that, I would always lust for that life and think it was the answer. And what I discovered, it's not the answer. It's great to make money. Don't get me wrong. It's great to have dreams and be ambitious, but it's not the end all be all and that you have to have some sort of firm foundation of who you are, what you care about. And, and uh, for me, a, a core set of values that you ascribe to and, and, and don't abandon for dollar signs. Um, and, and it was also really uh, enlightening to me to see the people that I was surrounded by and the sort of like lack of satisfaction in them despite all the billions or all the access or all the privilege. So I, I think I needed to experience that world in order to be free of it, free of the fantasy of it. Um, it was very liberating. Uh, I needed to go off and do my own thing for sure. I needed to have my thing that had nothing to do with my father's dreams for me, my mother's dreams for me. Um, I don't know if it needed to be that, but it needed to be something. And, and did you ever expect poker? Had you played any poker when you, I mean, should we, should we tell the story or, or would you like to tell the story of, of how that came to be? There, there's no rhyme or reason for it. It was a, it was a, just a total accident. I'd never had any background with gambling or poker. Um, I, you know, I tell the story that when my boss told me I was going to serve drinks at his poker game, I went home and Googled what kind of music do poker players like to listen to and what do they eat? You know, and I made this super embarrassing playlist with songs like The Gambler on it and um, got, you know, just like a cheese plate and showed up and and was really blown away by what transpired over the next six hours, seven hours. Um, I was fascinated with the game. You know, it's poker is a great game to learn to learn how to play the game of life. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's using this rational data, uh, in, in real time, and then having to also trust instinct and read people and, um, you know, sort of understand psychology and keep your wits about you find, find that, that, that calm place where, uh, emotions and fear, uh, don't get you on tilt. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a fascinating game. I think it's a really useful game, probably not at the stakes that the, the game, my games were at. I think at that point, it's just damaging. But um, I was also fascinated by the people that were attending these games. These were some of the most famous, most powerful, most accomplished people in the world. And I was a you know kid in my early 20s from a small town in Colorado. So it was all fascinating to me. 
Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on what could go right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. Where do you stand right now uh, with regards to naming names? Because naming names, again, it's a huge part of the film and how it was with the book and everything like that. And, and obviously some names appear to be out there on Wikipedia and stuff like that. So where how, where do you stand now? Yeah, so, you know, kind of moving forward, I when everything fell apart, it fell apart in an incredibly big way. And I found myself 35 years old, millions of dollars of debt, um, a social pariah, you know, this network that I had spent so many years building was completely decimated, a convicted felon. Um, and, you know, the list goes on just as rock bottom as you could, as you could imagine. And for me, you know, when I sat down and tried to leverage that entrepreneurial uh, mindset what I saw as, as, a, as a valuable asset coming from this whole thing was the story. You know, I thought there was a uniqueness to the story. And I also really needed to, if I was going to have a future and going to have any kind of opportunity, I needed to manage the narrative because the story that the tabloids was telling wasn't going to do me any favors. So I decided I would write a book and, and hopefully convince somebody really talented to write a movie. And then of course, when I went to the publishers, they all wanted this celebrity infused book. Um, and so I had to figure out where I stood with that because I wanted to respect people, respect w- what I believed in, which, which is, you know, you don't, you don't do harm to people. Um, but I also needed to advocate for myself and, and, and have a future. So the decision that I arrived at was, okay, I'll, I'll name the names that have already been named. If it's in the public medium, if these people have confessed to playing in these poker games, which is by the way, not a crime and not really an ethical violation, <laughs> it's just a poker game. Um, then they're fair game. And the stories I know that could really do damage, no one will ever know except for my attorneys. Um, and that's that. Okay, so some of the names are out there, and so, but in the film, nobody is named in the film, at least. And there's that Mr. X character, and he is—is is it? And if I say anything, you—you you, you know, we can take it out, of course. But he's supposed to be Toby Maguire, is that right? That's not exactly right. So Aaron, Aaron, and I spent eight months, you know, in, in interviews and and you know, mapping out who the, who the people were and who the players were. And, and player X was a composite character 
based on many of the different characters that I had told Aaron about. He was horrible. <laughs> I know he was a composite character, but he was horrible. Yeah. No, he wasn't a he wasn't a nice guy, that's for sure. And was Toby Maguire? No comment. That's fair enough. And yeah, I, and please don't feel pressure to comment about anything. Well, I like it. Take, take the shot and if, and if, you know, it doesn't offend me to be asked. Okay. Um hmm. Okay, well, I should ask more then. Who else? So who? So who was there? Just for because listeners like to hear names. Just like I think when you first got there, you were saying you loved to, you liked being around the names. We want to hear some names. Who? Who was? Who were names? Yeah. So Leonardo DiCaprio played a couple times because he's best mates with Toby Maguire, isn't he? Yeah. So Toby brought him. That's cool, isn't it? Did you? So were you? Did you get friendly with Leo? No, but I was like, you know, I mean, I grew up being. I was a young girl, and Titanic came out, so like. Everyone was in love with Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> yeah. Awesome, you know? Um, so it was quite shocking to be that young and all of a sudden find your and and not from Hollywood at all and have no designs to be in Hollywood and then all of a sudden find yourself in a room with people like that. Um Ben Affleck played And they're just at your so Ben Affleck and Leo DiCaprio are just at your game. Yeah. That's so cool. It was interesting. And then for me, because what was really cool too is there would be politicians that would show up that would be household names. There would be, um, you know, billionaires who their companies are, you know, some of the most famous companies in the world, people from the tech world, people from the art world, you know, some of the biggest uh, hedge fund owners. And, and so what you had is you had this table, nine people from all these different industries and all these different places all speaking freely and it was how's that how do you not find that fascinating you can't pay for that you know and and the amount of notes that i took on my computer that the amount of information i was learning about um the industries i was learning about the insider uh, sort of stories you know i it, it was it was a priceless experience and then when i started my own games to be 25 years old and have this be your clientele and be running some of the biggest poker games in the world and having to manage the books and manage all the people and no like actual recourse for collecting the debt. So always having to think on your feet, having everybody always trying to steal your game, um, you know, dealing with people winning and losing a hundred million dollars sometimes. And it's all on you. It's on your reputation. It was baptism by fire. And I, you know, I, I what I learned in those days is that this is what I'm good at. I'm, I'm good at being an entrepreneur. I'm good at thinking on my feet. I'm good at problem solving. Um, I'm, I'm good at action. I'm good at uncertainty. And, and that was really, you know, that was enlightening for me because I didn't really know what I was good at. My dad told me when I was young, oh, well, because it was really clear. Jeremy was the athlete. Jordan was the brain. Who am I? You know, and my dad's like, well, you like to argue and read. So maybe you should be an attorney. And it was just because I probably argued with everyone at the dinner table because I was just all mad. <laughs> that was that Freudian bit I was talking about. Um, I loved that bit when uh, you, you were talking about being at school and actually your teacher told you that um, that the Freudian stuff's still been debunked or whatever it might be. And just a way to, and he suddenly gets really angry, Kevin Costner. I, I love that because it's exactly how I might try to wind up my parents. Is that little dig, pretending that you're being innocent. Like, I don't even... What did you just say? <laughs> Man, see, 
But but you know what's like what was really just like again watching it again and this time watching that film knowing I was going to be talking to you. So then you're thinking about it even more like I'm putting myself in your shoes. So you you got involved. You sort of just fell into this poker world, working for this horrible guy who's shouting at you about bagels, um, getting the wrong bagels, and then he um, just drops you, and then you just did this mad thing to set up your own one. Do you want to go go into that? Yeah. Well. Um- you know, my boss was terrifying for sure. Um, and going up again against him felt really scary, but I, 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 I had seen that I wanted to create my own games and, and create this company that produced these games, um, for a couple of reasons. First of all, I, I knew I could make millions of dollars. Um, and even I, I never thought I would do it for even eight years, but if you have an opportunity at 25 years old to make millions of dollars um, and it's not at that time, I wasn't doing it illegally and it didn't feel you know, like immoral or whatever. I think you really jump on that. Um, it was an incredible way to build a network. It was exciting. And, and so I had seen this opportunity and I couldn't unsee it. And I just knew I could do it better than he was doing it. So um, I took a shot. I, I, I had, you know, all these observations from the eight months that I was serving drinks of how I could do it better. And so I basically put that whole thing into play. I wanted this to be like this incredible experience where someone walks into the room and feels like James Bond for a night. And it's not in a basement bar that smells bad. It's in the penthouse suite at the four seasons in Beverly Hills. And there's Cuban cigars and a much better soundtrack than my original stab at it, you know? Um, And the right lighting and the right food and a full staff that already knows what you want before you even say what you want. Um, you know, higher stakes. So there's more adrenaline. Um, everyone at this, at every seat is taken by somebody who's prolific. Um, just this whole like fantasy. And so I decided I wanted to create that. And then I, you know, after I got fired and, and my boss said he was going to take the game instead, I planned a game for the next week and invited everyone except for him. This new sort of like this new model of what I wanted it to be. Was it a, a relief when they turned up? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't think <laughs> I was like, I'll be surprised if anyone shows up because even if, you know, they would for me, I, I thought that my boss would make a phone call and shut it down, but yeah, they all came. Did you worry that he might, you know, become violent or anything like that? Not violent. I don't know. I, I was terrified. And then the net, but there's a great story um, that wasn't told in the movie. And, and, you know, a lot of times in movies, we don't get the ability to tell the full, to show the full spectrum of a character. Um, and in my experience in real life, there's always more nuance. And so the next morning, and so, you know, just to give you some background, my boss that I worked for, he was, yes, very horrible sometimes, but also really was invested in me and, and wanted to teach me how to become, I guess, more formidable, kind of like how my dad saw me, right? Like, you need to be tougher. The world's going to walk all over you. You're never going to survive it. And I would always, he would, you know, I would always be like, you need to be more kind and all this stuff. And, and so the next day after I ran that game, he called me at like 5 a.m. And he was like, get over here. And I, I went over to his house and he had me sit in this guest house and wait for him. And I was like, he's going to murder me. Like he's going to kill me. Why did you go? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why I went. 
And I'm just sitting there and he makes me sweat it out. And I'm, I'm super scared, you know? And he walks in and he's like, I'm proud of you. I'm like, what? (laughs) He's like, I'm proud of you. You know, it was almost like I had graduated his training session of you, you went for it. You know, you, you weren't afraid. You weren't a baby. You weren't worried about what people would think you, you went for it. And from that point forward, you know, we were friends and equals. Wow. You earned his respect. That's pretty cool. Yeah. It was a really cool moment. So do you, do you think there were, was it, was it, were there parts that were more difficult being a woman running this game? For sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, when I started the big game in LA, which was 10 times bigger than the, 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 the original game, there were these like serious poker players. They weren't pros cause I never let pros in, but these, these like sort of like older men who had been playing who were serious gamblers. And I would say for the first six weeks, even though I, I was the one that handled the invitation, I was the one that decided how much credit you got. I, you know, I, I had this, a lot of responsibility. I wasn't serving drinks. Um, for the first six weeks, they wouldn't look me in the eye. They wouldn't talk to me about anything pertaining to the business of the poker game. Um, and, you know, they would, they would, ask one of the other players to come into a different room. And, and then, and then one of those players would eventually ask me the question that was asked, but yeah. So, um, you know, that there was that, um, there was a point where some of the wives, uh, felt threatened. And so they would come to the game, sit in the corner and like sort of eye me up and down and no way. Yeah. I wanted to be like, I don't want, well, I I don't want your husband, right? I'm not, I'm not doing this to like find a boyfriend. This is, this is my business. But these are like, I guess they're like celebrity guys. So like the wives are thinking like. Yeah. But you know, after the first couple games, I was enamored with the celebrities and then it was like, no, no, no. Like I found something that could set me up for my whole life. You know, I, and, and all of a sudden, like I found something that I'm good at that I can create and you know, sweating, like swooning over celebrities just wasn't interesting. This was interesting. Creating this, this, this business for myself was interesting. Can't believe the women came and sat and watched you while sulking. Yeah. I was like, trust me after sitting around and listening to your husband's play poker for, you know, eight months, like I'm not interested. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. And I guess the other another part where you think about the fact that of of course you're a woman and this is maybe this is maybe even old fashioned or sexist actually, because it's just like, oh, can you sort of protect yourself? But then I'm thinking, well, I'm a man and I couldn't. Of course I couldn't. I couldn't protect myself from anyone, but but did that make it more dangerous? I don't know if it I think everyone in that position um is kind of putting themselves in some sort of danger. You know, if 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 the word if it's if it's common knowledge that you run a big cash game. Um, you're, you know, you're putting yourself in, in some sort of danger. And that certainly was the truth in New York City. Well, because the issue is some people don't always pay. I mean, that's, that's the risk. That's the risk that you run when you do these games. What if someone doesn't pay? And I guess the traditional way is to use force. Do you get some guys to go around and say, listen, you know, or we're going to beat you up or they do beat them up. And I, I was under the impression that you didn't want to go that way, right? No, I couldn't do that. 
there's no way I really, I have this thing, like, I can't, I can't harm people. Um, and, and, and I actually, I say that, but towards the end of, of my poker running career, I actually feel like I kind of was indirectly harming people because, um, there were a lot of people playing in the games that I think were probably gambling addicts. Um, and so I was providing the service. Uh, and, and so even though it wasn't a direct harm, um, it was indirect and, and it started to really wear on me. Uh, it started to, I started to really not sleep well at night. There, there was a guy in the movie who uh, was doing really well generally, and then he lost one time to an amateur, um, and then he kept losing and kept losing and kept losing, and he wouldn't go home. And was that another composite of, of different people? No, that was pretty, pretty, pretty based on on actual experience, and that was a really hard thing to watch. It also um, was the first time I ever got stiffed any kind of like big number, you know, cause he couldn't pay and, and I had to absorb some of that. Um, but for the most part, I, I felt really bad, badly for him. And, and I guess it was the first time I saw someone become completely out of control uh, and, and not, not be able to walk away and, and, and their life really came undone. You know, for the most part, most the people, particularly in LA, and my big game in New York that played in these games, they just had so much money that even if they lost a million dollars at the end of the night, it wasn't going to change their life. And you got the impression then that some of those super rich ones enjoyed, uh, again, it was that Mr. X character who's a mix of different of people who seem to enjoy ruining lives. Yeah, um, th- there there is something very savage about some of the way that some of the players and and, you know, that's, I guess that's the the heat of battle in in some ways, and and sometimes people get into that. You know, it's interesting doing this this podcast that I'm doing on athletes because some, and and then also having the the experience um, with the, with poker, you you see some people they're competitive with themselves, and then other people are just out for blood. It's a weird thing, isn't it? I suppose it's how people get some people get status through that kind of dominance. Yeah, I mean, well, I I think it's. It's ego. What do what do you do then? You've got people like you know Ben Affleck, Leonardo DiCaprio, Toby Maguire, politicians, big people, and somebody's not paying them. Like they they're expecting their money, aren't they? Yeah. So essentially, I I, I had to cover it. I mean, I was in in LA. I was part of the. I I would say I was part of the bank. Like the whole the whole game. If the if if someone didn't pay, the whole game kind of got stiffed, myself included. Um, in New York, I was the bank. So if someone didn't pay, I wrote the check. That's a lot of pressure. It's pretty tricky. The The one thing that kept it pretty safe, well, first of all, you have to kind of be able to read your, your gambler. Um, there's a certain amount that I think no one will pay. And in the heat of the moment, everybody wants more ammunition to get out of a hole. So if they're losing a big number, they'll take as much credit as you'll give them. And so you have to start to understand when to cut someone off and when to help them get out. Um, and that's, that's a, that's a difficult line to walk. A, a person losing a ton of uh, millions of dollars is a pretty like fierce animal. 
If you don't mind me asking, how much were you making at like the peak of the game, each game? What were you taking home? I know my number was like between four and five million at the end of the year. Like in total at the end of the year. I mean, it's a lot of money, isn't it? It's a lot of money. Although you are still at the table with these guys who are losing or winning that amount each week, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah. But at the, you know, if you keep books on people, which I did most, and, and if you, if you're doing it right, you know, there's a, there's a certain art to it. And, and that is, you want to seat this this table with people who have essentially equal skill levels, close to equal skill levels, equal playing styles. So you don't want someone who's just locking down chips and going to take home all the money every time you want action players and you don't want any pros. And if you do that properly and you look at your books at the end of the year, you have these huge volatile swings, but people are sort of about even, and then they're around even and, and the, the house is making money. How did the Russian mob get involved? Because that's when things took a bit of a dark turn. Well, there was the Russians and then there was the Italians. The Russian factor was a couple of the guys that were playing from Brighton Beach were these Russian-American businessmen, super sophisticated, uh, funny, you know, very, very felt very normal. Um, and I also had private investigators that would vet everyone and and, and they were pretty good at their job uh, and their stories checked out. And it turns out they were running the biggest insurance fraud scheme in New York city history and that they had ties to the Russian mob and the feds had been on to them for quite some time. So that's how they started to become very interested in this game. Um, then the Italians got involved. Uh, one of some, one of the, the syndicates came to me and said, and I don't know which family it was, I really don't, said, basically, if you don't give us a piece, we're going to shut you down. And I turned them down and then they sent someone to my house and this guy broke into my house and put a, put a gun in my mouth, and uh, which is just a terrifying, terrifying moment. Um, and he beat me up pretty badly and you know, took everything out of my safe and basically said, we'll be back, you know, and, and it's going to be a different answer this time. And really it even said, I, I know where your family lives in Colorado. And if you tell anyone, we're going to go find them. And so it was just a really terrifying, dark moment. Uh, and not only am I putting my own life in jeopardy, I'm now putting my, my family's life in jeopardy. And what am I doing it for? I'm doing it for money. You know, and, and I was so alone in that moment. I couldn't tell anyone. I couldn't call the cops. I mean, I, I, I was just completely in over my head. What, what runs through uh, someone's mind? What runs through your mind when there's a gun in your mouth? You're just so sh- like sure it's going to go off. You just, I, I remember my like teeth were chattering and I, and I was just like trying to be as still as possible. And the, and the moment seem to last for for so long you saw i can imagine wanting to show the person that i'm sufficiently scared so that they then like you've, you you've got me i'm scared you can take it out now yeah i mean i i think all i can remember is just trying to make my teeth stop chattering because i didn't want that to trigger anything you know i'm so sorry you had to go through that that's okay and at the time at that time as well were, were you sort of hooked on drugs at that point yeah yeah, I had, a, I had a pretty bad pill problem. What are pills? Is that ecstasy? No. Uh, I was taking a lot of Adderall, like 
so much Adderall is probably working more like meth. It was such a, such a large amount because the games would last sometimes 48, 72 hours. So it started out as kind of a just, well, this is what I have to do to make my life work. But then I would mix it with a benzo because to take the edge off. So, so like a Valium or a Xanax or something. And then I would drink and, 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 and this, this concoction of the upper and the downer and the booze was what enabled me to kind of keep going and, and things got so scary and so stressful and, and I just never slept. And, and so this was just a recipe for disaster, you know? Did you ever see that film Requiem for a Dream? Yeah. Was it like that? No, because I had to, because I was high functioning still. Yeah. I'm thinking of the the mother. Do you remember the mother? Yeah. 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 I'm sure I, ha- I'm sure I'm, I'm sure that that's how I came off on, on some of some occasions when I, you know, just didn't, didn't manage the, the speed part well. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, I was, I was really like out of my mind towards the end. I really was. Did people at, like at the table, did the sort of big stars and did, did they mention anything? No, I think I always kept it together for the games. Wow. That's professional. Well, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I'm impressed. <laughs> but, but, you know, horrible experience and that what happened in your home, that is awful. That is awful. And I suppose, was I guess that was a low point for you, right? Yeah. Did it sort of kickstart you into, into, changing things was it a point where you thought okay this has got to change no because i was so addicted to the money and the 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 status and the success that losing that felt worse than death honestly so i don't really think there were any consequences that was going that were powerful enough to kind of rip me away i mean it, it really took the feds raiding my game and, and seizing all my money for me to kind of slink away. Are you happy they did? I am. I am. It was getting really dangerous. I was, I, I, I completely lost myself. I was out of control. Um, I was making very bad, reckless decisions and I wasn't, you know, I, I, I wasn't going to leave. How did you get off the drugs? I went to rehab. What was that like? <laughs> it was crazy. So, uh, you know, after the, after that all happened, I moved back in with my mom and my grandmother, but then I would take these trips to, I took a trip to California to hang out with some of the degenerate degenerates I'd met and we were just doing a bunch of drugs and, you know, I wasn't facing the music. My life was ruined and I, I needed to face it. And my mom knew what I was doing and so she and my brothers and my aunt, who's been sober for 30 years, flew out and we were like at the montage partying and they just showed up in the piano bar. <laughs> I was like, oh my God. <laughs> God. You know, I had just done, I had just come off a bender and, um, and I, I agreed to go to rehab. At first, when I, when I just saw my mom, I was like, I'm not going to rehab. And then my brothers showed up and they walked in and they were like, we love you so much. And we haven't you know, we haven't really known what's going on, but we know now and we're here and we just want you to get better. And they're my little brothers, you know, and I just, it just eviscerated me. And so I said, okay, I'll go, but I'm only going if it's like a really nice rehab. And they're like, it's great. 
It's in Florida. It's probably on the water. Was it very emotional seeing your brothers? One of the most emotional moments of my life. Yeah. Um, and my aunt and uncle have been sober for 30 years and they're like, this girl needs a reality check, you know? And um, so they sent me to this very unfancy rehab in the middle of Florida. It was, I thought I was like going to like a, a bougie place in Palm beach and it was real deal, you know, but the people there uh, were incredible and they, you know, they, they want you, they wanted us to get better and they had incredible tools to teach us. And, and, you know, there was hilarious moments of like going to Walmart and they, they won't give you know, when you're in rehab, they won't give you cash because they're afraid you'll escape and go get drugs. So they gave us these gift cards and they're like in increments of $2, you know, and I'm like, I'll take a hundred. <laughs> <laughs> Do they work on alcohol and stuff, the gift cards? Well, I think you had, I think we had like rehab counselors there to watch, but yeah, they probably would. So um, the FBI were all involved in stuff. And in the end, you, I, you got off with 200 hours community service. Was How was the community service? It was actually incredible. Um, so, you know, I, I had an opportunity to, I got, I got federally indicted. Um, after two years of not running a game, not having anything to do with that world, uh, the, the FBI, 17 FBI agents showed up with machine guns and arrested me in the middle of the night um, because they'd been building a case for two years. Why did they have to come in with so much force? You know, I, it's a good question. I think that I don't think they thought I was going to be like a super dangerous person. I think, I think these things are strategized and they wanted me to be sufficiently scared. So I would make certain decisions. And, um, I think that that was what it was, but the, the, the agents that came were actually super nice. Even fed my dog breakfast. Oh, well, that's nice. That's not what they, they never show that in the films when they do an FBI raid that they feed the dog. I know. Oh, okay. Well, that's quite nice. And you did this, and but there are certain things like you can't ever vote again, and you can't go to Canada. Although I've been to Canada many times, but that was what I was told. And I guess basically what it is is when you get to the border, when you get to customs, if they run your criminal record and they show that you're a felon, then they can turn you away at the border. But a lot of times they're just kind of like, they, it, they obviously don't run everybody's like criminal background because that would take forever. Um, so it's just kind of a, it's a coin, you know, it's, it's a coin toss. We'll see. And do they ever, do people recognize you or at least when they read your name or when they see you in, in person, like, Oh, it's Molly Bloom. Um, the name. Yeah. I, I don't think it, I don't get recognized uh, that often, you know, just walking around the streets. Okay, but the name then. So let's say you're going up to customs in Canada and they're like, oh, you got a record here. Oh, wait, that's you. I mean, it depends. Like, I, I really love Canada, so I hope that doesn't happen. I hope not as well. I've never been there, but I think, it's, I think it seems very nice. Yeah, it's super cool. People are nice. It's outrageous that you can't vote. Can, is anyone who's got any kind of indictment or been to prison or is that you can't vote again? Is that how it is? Yeah. So um, there are some new, newer laws being introduced that as soon as you're done with paying off all your fines and your probation, you can 
some places you can vote again in states. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's a huge bummer. Uh, I was a political science major. I've always really felt super grateful for the democratic process and for voting. And, and so that's been a hard one. That seems insane to me. It's quite a fundamental right. I, I, I think so too. Do you ever um, hear from any of the big name people anymore? And especially like after the film, were any of them in touch to be like, hey, that was me, wasn't it? <laughs> you know, I did this, I did something right before the movie came out that I'm still kind of on the fence about. I, I completely changed my numbers, my email addresses, everything. Okay. F- out of fear? No, if it was so much out of fear as it was, I knew that all these people who had just disappeared from my life when everything had bottomed out were most likely going to, you know, sort of come back in. And, and I had this incredible small circle of people who had been ride or die. And, you know, I was about to go into something that was very wonderful, but also challenging. And I was newly sober. Um, Cause the first time I got sober, I, I didn't stay sober. And then I got sober again later, right before the movie came out. And, and that was when I, I think really took it seriously and, and kind of conceded to the fact that I am, a, you know, like I, I will always be an, an addict unless I'm and, and the, and the way to, and I have to practice the 12 steps or, or whatever the, the, the process is to stay sober. And I was newly sober and this movie was coming out about my life. And I just wanted, I wanted to, to, it to be simplified. And I wanted, I, I didn't want all the people that I knew were going to come back to have access. Well, you still got, I mean, now it was quite easy. I, you can just send you a message on, I don't, I don't encourage um, all the listeners to do that because, because Molly's busy, but you can just, your messages are open on Twitter. So people could now. Yeah. I didn't have social <laughs> media back then though. Okay. Yeah, of course. So it's been, that was like what five years ago when the film came out. Yeah, it was 2018. Is that is that four or five years sober now? Uh-huh. Congratulations. Thank you. Thanks. That's the thing people say, isn't it? It's, it's, to me, it seems quite patronizing, but everyone says it. No, I think it's nice. Okay, good. Congratulations, then. I, I stand by that. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about what you're doing at the moment, because this podcast is coming out, for example, is out about the, the athletes and stuff. Tell me about that. Yeah. Um, so I'm doing a couple of things. I'm, I'm working on my second book now. And it's really just, you know, it's in this, in an interesting way, I'd been looking for power my whole life, you know, through success, through sports, like how can I be powerful? How can I have agency over my life? And I don't think I found it until I completely became as powerless as a human can be until everything fell apart. Um, And I, I mean, the the government had my passport uh, and I was broke and scared and addicted to drugs and alcohol. And it was from that moment forward, not relying on any of the external things that I started to cultivate this real power that allowed me to have this incredible comeback and, and navigate these incredible things. Um, and so the book is about that. It's about what I learned uh, about cultivating this power that I think we all have inside to change our life, to have agency over our life, to, um, to perform well, to have good relationships. It's really about how, how much power do I have over my own mind, my own emotions, and thus my own circumstances. And there's some real practical life stuff. It's not woo-woo. 
that we can cultivate in our life that I, that I learned in, in, in that moment of deep desperation um, that I really feel compelled to share. I, I like not woo-woo. I think that should be on the front cover of the thing. There, look, there are a few people in the world probably better placed than you to, to give that kind of advice and, and to, to look back at you know, where you were and where you are and that kind of thing. So I think that sounds fascinating. When's that going to be out? Do you have an idea yet? I would say like 12 to 18 months. Okay. Well, maybe we can talk again when it comes out. I would love that. Yes. Um, and then that's a, you, you're, you know, the other part of that is telling stories. I, I you know, the, the thing that I learned about writing a book and working on a movie is that I love telling, I love stories. I love other people's stories. I love, you know, it's just, I love being a storyteller. And so um, this, this podcast that I'm doing with uh, Stitcher, Sirius XM and, and uh, Film Nation and the producers are Gilded Audio and they're great. Um, is about Olympic scandals and controversies. But it's not just that story. It's the story of the person behind it, the causes and conditions. You know, what's the backstory? How, what led you to make this choice? Um, talk, walk us through what happens after you make this choice or after this event happens. And you know, I, I think it's it's very entertaining to hear these stories. And there's some crazy stories, as you can imagine, from the Olympics. And there are the stories that we all know about. But then there is a whole sort of like underbelly of other stories that we don't know about that. I Every time I, I sit down to do one of these, I'm just like, my mind is blown. But, but also seeking to understand and normalize that humans are flawed. And sometimes we make decisions that seem crazy to an outsider but when you when you're walked through it start to become less insane and you know like help us to understand torch with molly bloom which people can get in all the normal podcast places right right you've been on the edge molly bloom uh thank you for coming on thanks andrew it's been great to be on I don't even know what to say. That was just so, so enjoyable. Uh, it really was just a lot of fun talking to her. I'll have to ask her on some day again because I could have just spoken to her for hours. Um, I hope it felt that way listening as well. Uh, she just makes you feel a million dollars and that is part of the charm, the intelligence and the splendor of Molly Bloom. How was that for you, spending that hour in her company? Let me know on Twitter or Instagram. It's andrewgold underscore OK. Let Molly know. She's on both Instagram and Twitter on I'm Molly Bloom. Maybe I can get her to come to the YouTube version of this. So come watch that at 9 p.m. UK time, 4 p.m. Eastern, and join at least me, maybe both of us in the chat as we re-watch the video together. Thank you for all your support. Uh, I hope you keep enjoying the podcast. It's going from strength to strength and, you know, I owe you guys for that. Uh, I'll keep doing my all to bring you the best guests in the world. Molly Bloom was certainly one of them. <laughs> <laughs>